tonight. Did you bring a Bible tonight? All right, I want you to hold it up in the air with me, if you would. Wave it around. I got an electronic Bible. I got a paper Bible. We got them all, right? All right, say this out loud with me. This is my Bible. I am what it says I am. Have what it says I have. I can do everything. My Bible says I can do by his spirit. This is God speaking to me. Amen. Good. Open it up to Nehemiah with me, the book of Nehemiah. Last uh, Saturday, um, the my time in uh, prayer, and I felt it again this morning. It was so awesome. I was meeting with some of our young ministers here at the church, and uh, just, man, I'll tell you that God has been pouring out something supernatural. You know, I've been a Christian a long time now. Um, not as long as some of you, but uh, and been in ministry a really long time. Uh, I'm going to be on 35 years coming up here here real soon. 30, not 35, 30, 37 years actually coming up in December. And uh, you know, in all that time, I've seen some great outpourings, but nothing compares to what I'm feeling in the spirit right now. Nothing. I mean, I I sense that we're we're in something. God's doing something. And one of the things that he was telling me is, is that I want you to teach on the book of Nehemiah to my people because, because Nehemiah is a great example of revival breaking out and that you, you, you basically, uh, and we'll get into this in the weeks ahead, but Nehemiah teaches us that in revival, a lot of times there's all kinds of difficulty going on as well. And Nehemiah was building a wall. It took him 52 days, if you can imagine this, 52 days to build this wall. It had been 70 years and nobody could build it. Uh, it was the protection. It was every gate had a symbolic meaning. Uh, there was one gate was called the fish gate. One was called the dung gate. Um, and uh, the dung gate is where everybody threw all their trash and refuse. In fact, Jesus talks about the dung gate in uh, Scripture because he, he talks about, because what happened at the dung gate, everybody was throwing their, you know, you have to have some place to throw your waste, okay? So that's where it all went, was in this valley, and it's called the Valley of Hemen, was outside that dung gate. And so they would throw all the, everything would go down, everything bad would go into that valley. Well, there was so much methane that had accumulated you know what happens, like you see this happen in barns sometimes, that if that methane builds up to a certain level, what's going to happen? It's going to blow up. It's going to catch on fire. And that's exactly what happened. And so Jesus talks about that the valley of Hemen, he says, is like hell. He says, because it's a fire that can't be quenched. They couldn't put it out because once it started in the valley, it just kept going night and day. There was, And because refuse refuse kept going into the valley there was always stuff to burn and it kept going and there were maggots there and worms and he jesus said in in that valley the fire dieth not and neither does there are worms and, and he said you want to know what hell looks like that's what hell looks like well that's at the dung gate so every one of these gates and they're all torn apart i mean israel has been decimated the te- the temple was completely torn down and um a guy by the name of Zerubbabel actually gets the, the, the call from God to go to Israel and rebuild the temple. And it's really awesome. And you read about it in the book of Ezra. The first, the book of Ezra is, uh, uh, as you read it, and that's right before Nehemiah, the book of Ezra 
is uh, the first part is about Zerubbabel and how he's rebuilding the temple. Then the last part is about Ezra, who's bringing all the artifacts into the temple, okay? You know, they brought all the gold and silver back from captivity where they were at. So it's interesting as you, as you, as you read through this because Israel, there were so many things that these people had been in captivity so long, they had never even experienced Jerusalem. They had never experienced the temple. The older people had, but, but that wasn't who came back. These people, like, are coming back from captivity or being in bondage, and they haven't experienced any of this stuff. And so it tells us in a, it's about Ezra chapter 3 that, uh, you don't need to turn there, uh, but Ezra chapter 3, it says that they laid the foundation of the temple and man revival broke out. People were crying, people were laughing, people were shouting, and it was such a tumultuous moment in Israel, in Jerusalem at that moment. People didn't know what was going on. It was absolute chaos because people were so, they didn't know how to respond. Uh, some of them remembered what it used to be like. Some had never seen anything like that. I mean, it was just, it was overwhelming the whole moment. It's interesting You know, that Ezra and Nehemiah, these books, and actually Esther would be right before Ezra, that these books all appear prior uh, prior to Job in Psalms and Proverbs. And actually, these happen at the end of the Old Testament. So when you do your chronological, like Ken, I know you're doing the chronological, that when you do the chronological Bible study, that you'll find out that Right before Malachi, actually nine years before Malachi is when the book of Nehemiah is happening, okay? About nine years. Now, this, uh, th- that's important for us to remember because, you know, we look at our Bible and are like, well, why is our Bible broke down the way that it is? And the reason it's broke down the way it is is because that when, they, when they were setting the, pay, the, the chapters, the books, they wanted this mount to be about histori- history, they wanted this mount to be about poetry, which is Proverbs and Psalms, and Job, they considered that too. They wanted this part to be about minor prophets, and then this part to be about uh, major prophets, okay? So they broke it all down that way, and then, of course, the five books of the law. Now, if you get a Jewish Bible, the way it's broken down is totally different. Only our English, only our, you know, our Catholic Protestant faith has taken the Bible and broken it down this way. The Jews would have had it more in a different, would have had everything a little bit more chronologically. But it doesn't matter because you need to study your Bible and you need to figure out when these things all happened anyways. Amen. It's just good, that's a good reason for you to study your Bible. So I'm sure a lot of you didn't even realize that that Ezra and Nehemiah happened right, that Nehemiah's whole deal happened right before the book of Malachi. And then that's it. You know, Malachi... For 400 years, God isn't going to talk to Israel anymore. 400 years. That's 10 generations are going to die. And he's not going to, he's not going to do anything until actually nothing's going to happen until he appears. I, I said before that he appear, appeared to Mary, but actually nothing is going to happen until he appears to Zechariah standing next through the angel, standing next to the, um, the altar of incense in the, in the temple. Okay? So nothing is happening. I mean... You've got all kinds of things like Masada. Have any, any of you heard about that? That's all happening in between the Testaments. Um, you've got, you know, you've got different, uh, the Maccabees, that was all a big deal. The priests, and they were warrior priests and all the things that happened. That all happened in that 400 years. But there was no interaction where God was speaking to the people for 400 years. 
That's a long time. Ten generations. And you know, when you got ten generations and they have these books and, uh, and they've been in captivity and in trouble and all the things that have happened, there's a lot that's forgotten. You know, Nehemiah, never, he never was in Israel. He never was in Jerusalem. Ever. So, you know, when you, when, you know, like I can talk about my trip to the Philippines. You've been to the Philippines, right? We can talk about that, but all you're hearing is from our memory. We can even show you pictures of it, but you're not having the full experience. You know, so when you, when, how many of you have been to the Philippines? I know Josh has. Anybody else been there? You've been there? So when you're in the Philippines, not only do you have the experience of everything's green and, and all this wonderful and these beautiful uh, brown people that are there, but it's hot. It's so hot. You can't believe how hot it is. And you don't get that from a picture, right? I mean, it, I'm, I'm not talking about like hot, like Arizona hot. I'm talking about like hot, like humid hot, humid hot. And, um, you know, when I was there in the seventies, man, we played basketball. We played, um, if I, if I remember this right, we played, uh, we played 30 games in 30 days in the jungles, okay? 30 games in 30 days. Some days, because we didn't play on Sunday, some days we were playing two games a day. And, uh, you know, as a young 18-year-old, 19-year-old man sweating that much in the jungle, you can imagine, and a whole team of guys that I was with, you can imagine how wonderful we smelled. And, you know, they didn't have showers, so you had to do buckets. You know, you, and it, 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 does anybody know what a bucket shower is? You know, it's you take the ladle and you pour the water over your head, you shampoo, and then you pour the bucket of water over your head. That's how we live. They, maybe they do that in Puerto Rico. I don't know. But it depends where you go, right? It depends where you go. I mean, if you were in a place. So you get my drift here is, is that, you know, we could talk about those kinds of things, but unless you have something, some reference point to relate it to, it's real hard to understand it. I mean, it, you know, it, I mean, uh, Michigan summers are amazing compared to the tropics of the Philippines. Let me say it like that. I mean, it's amazing. I mean, people are like, oh my gosh, it's 80 degrees. Oh, this is horrible. And there it's 110 degrees and it's rains every day. So it's humider than you can even imagine. Nehemiah had no reference point except what he heard other people tell. He's the cupbearer of the king, and he's in bondage. Now, kind of some real interesting plays here. The, the king at this time in, in, um, in where they're in captivity is, um, is King uh, Adxerxes, all right? And Adxerxes is the son of the king that married Esther. All right. So Adxerxes is the son. Now these guys will have different names as you look in scripture. They'll come under different, you know, you, you won't see his name as Adxerxes in another place. You might see it, but you know, they'll have Latin names. You know, like Peter had two names, Cephas and Peter. These guys, a lot of these guys, their name in different languages was, you know, it was just said different, still the same person. Adxerxes is the son of Esther and the king. Now, I don't know if he is the son by birth, but because Esther's the queen, she is in charge, you know, in the miracle that God did to pull all that together, that Esther has influence at Xerxes' life. 
And by the time Xerxes is in power, there are some scholars that believe because Esther is the queen mother, she's sitting there in the same room while he permits, Xerxes permits the uh, Ezra to go and Zerubbabel to go back and then also to, to let Nehemiah go back. So Esther's role is huge. I mean, it's absolutely huge because Esther didn't just save Israel at that moment. Esther was a part of educating a pagan people about Jewish faith. You know, the Bible doesn't tell you everything. You do know that, right? I mean, sometimes we're like, no, the, you know, the Bible tells us everything. It doesn't tell you everything. In fact, John told us in the New Testament, he said, if we wrote down everything Jesus did, if we wrote it all down, there wouldn't be enough room for you to have book, there would be no room that could hold all the books of what we would write about what Jesus did. You and I, are we're only seeing little snippets through these guys of what Jesus actually did. And I'm going to tell you what, in the Old Testament, you're only seeing snippets of what God did. You're not seeing the whole thing of what God did. God had a huge plan. We don't read anything about, we have to look in other history books to find out that Esther was actually there and actually was a part of the education process of Xerxes while he was there. But it's there. That's why we study. Amen? Look at your neighbor and say he's talking to you right now. Yeah, so the Bible doesn't tell you everything. Now, it tells you most of all, it tells you a lot, and it's good to look at it, but we have to understand about how God, you know, give you an example with this. People ask this question, how could a good God allow people to die, to be, to be taken out? You know, he told Israel when they went into the promised land, wipe these people out. Let's take a one, let's take one people group, the Amalekites. All right. Now, if you went on the surface of that story about the Amalekites, when he told Saul to go in and to wipe out the Amalekites, basically he said, when, I, when you wipe these guys out, all right, I want you to kill everything, all the animals. I want you to kill all of the kids. I want you to kill everybody. Wipe them, kill the king, kill everybody. All right, now let's stop for just a minute because that does sound like, gosh, that's horrible. What did the kids do? But understand that what was happening with the Amalekites at the time, and it talks about this in Scripture, that they were murdering children. The kids were being brought up in pagan faiths that were teaching that, you know, that it was a great thing to die for a false god, all right? They were uh, totally into bestiality, and if you don't know what that is, you need to look it up. But they were totally, so the animals are all defiled. Perversion is at a super high level among society with the Amalekites. But here's a backstory I want you to think about for a minute, all right? And we don't have this in Scripture. But there were people in the Bible that were even more wicked than the Amalekites. And God sent a prophet to them to tell them to repent. And you know who it was? The Ninevites. And they were wicked. They were just as wicked as anybody else in the Bible. And God sent a prophet to them. You know, we don't see that God ever sent a prophet to the Amalekites. But if God sent a prophet, you know, let's just do some deductive reasoning here. If God sent a prophet to the Ninevites, then he'd be unjust if he didn't send a prophet to the Amalekites to warn them to turn from their wickedness. 
Does it have to be recorded for us to know that that happened? Well, deductive reasoning says, look, if he did it for the one, he would have done it for the other because he's a just God, and I absolutely believe he's a just God. You know, Jonah goes into the Ninevites, and I mean, these guys are so pagan and so filthy, and their lives are such a mess. I mean, it's, it's total debauchery, and he goes in, and he doesn't even want to be there. God made him go to a place he didn't want to go because it was so bad. And he stands up in the midst of them and says, repent. And the king hears what he's saying, and the king says, we're going to repent. And he makes everybody repent. And it becomes such a heavy repentance. Watch this now because you see the whole bestiality thing here. He even makes the horses repent. Well, he does. He puts sackcloth and ashes on the horses, on the animals. Now, here's my thought. If God did that for the Ninevites, how do we know he didn't do that for the Amalekites or the Jebusites or the Hittites or whoever? I believe that God sent prophets to him. We just don't have record of it. But that doesn't mean it didn't happen. You see what I'm saying? And if he did it for one, I got to believe he would do it for the other. Does God love people? Absolutely he loves people. Does God want people to turn from wickedness and to turn to him? Absolutely. Because he knows that sin is a destroyer. Can you, can you imagine just for a moment, and then we get back to this on Nehemiah. Can you imagine for a moment how diseased the Amalekites were by the time that Saul got there? Because of all of the incestuous and diseased things that were happening with animals and all this stuff that was going on in their society, the perversion. And remember, we're talking about ancient of days when cleanliness was not a real big deal. Can you imagine how bad that was? It's, it's just so horrible. I mean, I've seen some third world countries that come close, but, but nothing that could have been at that level, at that level. But God loves people. And if he sent a prophet, see, this is where we struggle because we're just like, well, you know what? It doesn't say that he did that. But did he do it for one? Did he do it for one? And if he did it for the Ninevites, they were no better than anyone else. See, I think some of Scripture just shows us God's heart. It doesn't show us all that God did. It doesn't show us everything. Your Bible doesn't have everything in it because you couldn't carry a Bible that was that big. You couldn't. And you couldn't understand it because it would just be too bogged down with information. So, anyways, here's Nehemiah. Nehemiah is living among a pagan people who have been influenced by the Queen Esther, who has saved the Jews. Nehemiah, he's just going along, minding his own business. He's, a, he's more than likely, he is, um, he's a eunuch. They would have castrated him because he was in among, because the king would never let you, a, a, a male that wasn't castrated besides himself, be in front of the queen. So he more than likely was castrated. Um, he's born and bred in in bondage. So he has no, he's lived in slavery as a cupbearer. He's living a good life. I mean, a cupbearer has a great life because he's living in the palace. He's got nice accommodations. But you know how that all works out. He's the guy the king totally trusts. He's going to drink from the cup. And if the cup's good and there's no poison in it, the cupbearer will live. So Nehemiah's got a pretty decent job here unless somebody tries to kill the king and then not such a great job, okay? And uh, so 
Nehemiah is going to go in and he's going to, he, he's going to be talking to some people that visited Israel. And one of them was his brother. And if you look at this with me, and I know this is some of this is review from last week, but verse 1, the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hilkiah, and it came to pass in the month of Chisalu in the 12th year, and they're saying that's about October, as I was in Shushan, the palace, that Hanan, Hanani, one of my brothers, came, he and certain men from Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews that had escaped, which were left of the captivity, and concerning Jerusalem. And he, they said to me, the guys that were with his brother, the remnant that are there, left of the captivity there in the province, are in great affliction and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem also is broken down, and the gates thereof are burned with fire. Now, you know, the gates are a big deal, but they wouldn't have been a big deal to Nehemiah. The temple would have probably been a bigger deal because that was the place of worship. But something happens to Nehemiah. Because as they're telling this to him, and I want you to see this, in verse 4 it says, And it came to pass when I heard these words. Okay? And it's interesting because as you look at that, and if you write in your Bible, I want you to underline that all the way up to heard these words. Because that's actually what all that that comes before, and it came to pass as I heard these words, is all one Hebrew word. Is all one Hebrew word, and it's the Hebrew word uh, sama, S-A-M-A. And sama is a, is, is a word that is used by the Israelites to mean listen, listen, okay? Now, you're listening to me right now, but you might not really be listening. You're hearing me, but you really might not be hearing me. Sama means that you heard it, you obeyed it, and you took it as a command. It became a loud sound to Nehemiah is what it was. So when it says, and it came to pass that I heard, what he's saying is, is that I didn't just hear about what happened there. This thing became something more to me. It's like the this word Shema is used whenever they, uh, if you've ever heard of the word Shema, which is the, the Jewish people use, which is where they say, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. That's a command. That's not that, hey, guys, listen up, okay? This is the way that it is. And, and probably the best way I can explain it, and Greg could testify to this tonight if I asked him to. <clears throat> now, I never, I never did this much with the girls, I don't think, but with my son I did this, that I, w- that I would be talking to him, and I knew he wasn't listening. So for a fact, I did something to make sure that he understood the gravity of the conversation I'm having with him. That could be a lot of different things. I mean, I never heard him. He's still alive, so you know that just—that's proof, right? <laughs> He's sitting there in the back. He's still living today. But he can tell you that there were a few times that I might have grabbed him by the shirt, not hit him, but grabbed him by the shirt and lifted him up on the wall and said, "Hear me." 
Yes. See? And that's what happened, see? See, you know, you guys with your parents, you knew when they were just talking, and then it was like, like for some of you, it was like they would say your middle name. Right? Like, what's your middle name? Tia Lee? When you heard that, you knew, okay, whatever's happening, I need to stop. Turn it off. Mama's not happy right now. Right? Absolutely. What's yours, Josh? What's your middle name? Joshua Thomas. So when they, when you heard that in the house, it was too late. You were in tri- you knew it at that moment, right? Yeah. Right. Right. I mean, it, so you see you see the point here. Now your parents can talk to you, and maybe you're hearing what they're saying. But there's a movement that they make, whatever that move is, okay, whether it's middle name or move in on you or, you know, when our kids were little, Sharon would go for the wooden spoon. And the wooden spoon was a bad deal in our house. <clears throat> Anybody know about the wooden spoon? Wooden spoon was not a good deal. If she, got, if she started opening the drawer, it was bad news for whoever she was opening that drawer for. <laughs> and uh, But see, it got their attention. So see, it's more than just like you're sitting here and you're listening to me and, 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 and I'm talking and you're, you're, you know, you're going along and that's good, that's good. This is at a level that moves it to the highest level of I need your absolute attention. That's what Nehemiah had happened to him. It's an amazing thing, isn't it? The guys that had been there, they were troubled about what Nehemiah saw, but it didn't affect them. I mean, it bothered them, right? And, you know, I shared last week with you that we have all kinds of things that come into our <clears throat> our lives that bother us. You know, the, there's a, one channel on I, I watch, man, and it, it does, it bugs me because it seems like they always are showing suffering puppies. <laughs> Every commercial is about a suffering puppy. And I'm just like watching this, and I'm, I'm like, oh, man, this, that's horrible. And I sit there, and I look at Esther, my little dog, and I think, Esther, thank God you're not one of them suffering <laughs> puppies. You know, you're, you get a nice, I hope you appreciate the home you have, Esther, you know, that you live, and we feed you and clean up your poop and take care of you, and, you know, and you got a warm bed to sleep in and to say, and, and look at that suffering, that suffering puppy. See, we see all kinds of things that don't really make us. I mean, I don't feel like writing a check out to these guys. Right? I don't think I'm bad. I mean, because of that, I just don't. I mean, I give my money to a lot of other things, okay? But, I mean, I'm not like sitting there going, oh, my gosh, those poor suffering. I mean, you know, and they make it bad. They got the puppies are shaking, and, you know, the dog's got his one his eyes missing. And, I mean... I mean, it's just, I mean, it's, stop laughing. Stop that. It's horrible. And, you know, if you're, if you're, if you, if, you know, if you're a humanitarian caring about, or a, an animal Aryan or whatever it is, you know, that, you know, for suffering, I mean, that tears you up. You're just like, oh, my gosh. I told Sharon, I said, I can't watch. I don't want to even. So, you know, what I do is I do what most of America does when that stuff's on. I go, click right next channel 
let's go over here and watch, you know, something else. Because it's not affecting me. I'm not hearing it. Now, they're make, is their message going to affect some people? You better believe it does. It affects a lot of people. But it's not affecting, it's not affecting me. And so for Nehemiah, <laughs> for Nehemiah, he hears this thing, and it is totally got a hold of him. It's got a hold of him. And uh, this, he hears something. Something happens to him. And so he says, when I heard these words, he said, I sat down and I wept, and I mourned certain days and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. So, I mean, this thing has really, really got a hold of him. And he goes on and he says here, and I, want to, I just want you to see a little bit of this prayer tonight that he prayed. Um, he said, and I, so I, he says, after I took this time before the God of heaven, he said, I beseech you, God, O Lord God of heaven, the great and terrible God that keeps covenant and mercy for them that love him and observe his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open that you may hear the prayer of your servant, which I pray before you now, day and night, for the children of Israel, your servants, and confess the sins of the children of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Both I and my father's house have sinned. So what's happening here? Nehemiah, this thing has, just them telling him this. Do you see the hand of God in this? That's what I'm trying to, my point I'm trying to make. This is more than just a bunch of guys brought a report back about what was going on. This is the hand of God. This is the hand of God. Something has happened as he is hearing this that has hit him deep to his core. And he's shaken by it. He doesn't know what to do. And so he does what he knows to do, and that is to pray and to fast and to, to talk to God. So, and that's exactly what he does. He begins to pray, and he begins to talk to the Lord. There's a, there's a word for prophecy in the, um, in the Old Testament you know, we're more familiar with the prophecy like thus saith the Lord kind of a thing. But there's, a, there's another word that's used for prophecy where it means that God's hand comes on you and a burden is imparted to you. The hand comes on you and a burden is imparted into your life. And then God's hand is lifted and the burden remains. All right? And the burden remains. And that burden carries you through, you know, compels you to do something whatever that burden is. So that's what's happening with Nehemiah. Not only has he heard about what's happening, he now has a burden for what has happened. And there's a big difference. And so he's so burdened, now he's trying to figure out what can I do? What can I do about this? How can I change this? And so he, he begins to pray. And the first thing he hits is, look, I've sinned, God. I've sinned. My people have sinned. And then he goes on and he starts talking about all of Israel. And he says, we have sinned. Now, remember, they're back there building the temple right now, okay? And, and Ezra's taking all the artifacts in. And, but Nehemiah, he is so burdened about this wall because there's no protection around Israel. And so he begins to pray. And he says in verse 7, And we have dealt very corruptly against you, God, and have not kept your commandments, nor your statutes, nor the judgments which you commanded your servant Moses. Remember, I beseech you, Lord, the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you transgress, I will scatter you abroad among the nations. And if you turn to me and keep my commandments and do them, though there were, 
though there were of you cast out unto the uttermost part of the heaven, yet will I gather them from thence and bring them into the place that I have chosen to set my name there. Now these are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. And so, O Lord, I beseech you, let your power, be, your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who desire to fear your name. And prosper, I pray you, thy servant this day, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man, for I was the king's cupbearer. Now, he doesn't tell us that he's thinking he's going to compel the king to get him to go. He doesn't say that there. But there's a reason that he's saying, God, notice, he says, grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Who's the man he's talking about? That's the king, right? Grant me mercy, God, in the sight of the king, because I'm the king's cupbearer. So from this point on now, this burden is on Nehemiah, and he's trying to figure out, how can I bring this up? Because you're not allowed to bring stuff up. You know, Esther, you remember Esther, you've probably, most of you have seen the movie, and Esther, Esther can't even be in front of the king unless he calls for her, right? It's a penalty of death if you go without being asked. And so Esther takes great boldness to come in before the king when she does, and of course then he bids her to come, and then they, you know, then when they go through their whole scenario where she, what she asked him to dinner. But Nehemiah is not even allowed to talk unless the king asks him, which he does. He does ask him. But my point is with this tonight, in a way I kind of want to wrap this up with everybody, is, is that something happened in Nehemiah that God pushed him to a point in his life, pushed him to a point in his life where he was at a threshold. All right? A threshold. In, in, in uh, theology and in psychology too, they talk about a term, it's called liminal space, L-I-M-I-N-A-L. Is anybody familiar, besides the guys in my class today, is anybody familiar with that word, that term? What liminal space means is, is that you're so uncomfortable from where you've been, but you're so uncomfortable with where you're going, and you're in a space, and it's called a liminal space. The only way that you ever get to transformation in your life is when you get tired of being the way you were. Nobody changes just because they want to change. You got to be, look, you're, you're, I, I, I'm telling you right now, your health won't change, your spiritual life won't change, your finances won't change, until your marriage won't change, your family won't change, until you get tired of it being the way it is. Then when you're tired of it, when, you, when you're now at a point where the fear of staying where you are is, is so bad that you don't want to stay there anymore, now you're ready and you're suspect to change, but you might not even know what that change is, so you have this kind of fear of, I don't know what's going to happen, but I know this, I, I'm also afraid of being where I'm at. I don't want to be here anymore. It's called liminal space. And in that liminal space is where transformation happens. That's what's happening with this. It's a threat. The word liminal actually in the Latin means threshold. It's like to be at a point in your life where you're at a threshold to, you know, we talk a little bit of here in the church about a point of demarcation, that it's time to cross over into this next thing. A great example of this is the Israelites. God brings them up to the Jordan River. Everybody remember this? 
brings him up to the Jordan River. He says, I want you to send in 12 spies, check out the land, come back, all right? When they go into the, now look, they've been in the wilderness for how, for, for, for not that long of a period of time yet. So they've just, they've come out of Egypt, but did they see God do great things in Egypt? Man, they did. Did God part the, the Red Sea? <laughs> they all saw that. I mean, it was, they, he, he took care of them. He provided for them. He watched over them. They come up to the, prom, the, the promised land is in front of them. The Jordan River's right here. The first city that's across the Jordan River, river is Jericho. And so here they go. Josh, they, they send the 12 spies in. And in those 12 spies, two of them come back. And in that liminal space where they're at a threshold now where they can leave the wilderness and go into the promised land, two of them say, let's do it. Let's do it. Ten of them prophesy doom and gloom. So what are, they, what are they doing? They're saying, look, even though we don't like where we're at right now, we're not ready to give that up for that. Okay? We, 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 we don't like it, but we don't like it enough to risk our lives over here because there's giants over there. Well, who cares about that? I mean, what's the big deal with that? God already parted the, I mean, come on, guys. He parted the Red Sea in front of you, and you walked over on dry ground, and Pharaoh's army was huge, and they all died in one day. God pulled their chariot wheels off while they were crossing in the water, and he threw hailstones from heaven. He was throwing rocks at them. See, in liminal space, what happens is, is that you face that confrontation. So what God says, look, you guys aren't hurting enough to go in, so I'm going to raise up a new generation that don't want to go in. So for 40 years, people are dying off in the wilderness, and then 40 years later, we come back up to liminal space. Now, in 40 years, they're going around a mountain, right, in the wilderness. They're going around a mountain. They know every place they've been, they've been before. First of all, there are people buried along the way. Right? So every place, they're not setting up camp in brand new places for 40 years. They've been setting camp up in the same locations around for 40 years. At 40 years, God comes in and says, guys, it's time to go in. Now, this time, Joshua is in charge. And so Joshua sends in a couple of guys, and they find out what's going on. And then they come back, and they say, well, we went into Jericho, and we saw the whole deal. But Joshua has already got a grip on this because in his liminal space, what he has done now is he is saying, okay, I'm done with this. I, I don't know. You know, some of you here, there's some things that you need to be done with. I mean, you're still aggravated over them. You're just like, gosh, man, I'm same old. In fact, somebody even said, it seems like we just keep going around the same old mountain. Well, anytime you're saying that, that means that you got up to a place. Now, look, I'm not saying that to be critical. I'm just, I want you to grab this, that you hit a point in your life where you could have crossed into something else, but the adventure of going into something you're unfamiliar with seemed too great compared to what you already had. 
I, I can tell you about people that I've seen that came to this church, got baptized in the Holy Spirit, and, and spoke in tongues, and miraculously were touched, but they went back to environments that were killing them spiritually. Because they were like, well, this doesn't feel the same. You know, new stuff doesn't always feel good. Sometimes it feels really uncomfortable because you're not used to it, right? You know, I, I, I bought a, you know, you buy a new car, man, you're thrilled about the new car, but it takes you at least a year to figure out what all the buttons do, right? I mean, you're like, oh, wait, where's this? And how do you, how do you reference point everything in that new vehicle by the old vehicle, right? So what do you do? If, you're, if your seat control was here and not over here, where do you reach to control the seat in that new vehicle where it's over here? down on the side because for years that's what you were you were used to you were used to it God brought Nehemiah to a place of liminal space he knew he could not stay where he was at in fact he was so committed to it that he was ready to lay down his life to be able to get to, to move forward something something had to happen it breaks, I think it breaks God's heart that we come up, I think it broke God's heart that day that the Israelites came up to the promised land and then decided that they didn't want to do it. Ten guys convinced all of Israel this is not a good idea. While two were screaming, we can do it, God's taken us so far, come on, we can do it. Where are you at today that God has brought you to a point of liminal space? Is it your spiritual life? Is it your physical health? Is it your family? You know, is it time for you to say, I'm going all in instead of partially in, a quarter in, I'll do what I can? Or is it time to say, I'm in this? You know, it's, a, it's an interesting thing that, that happens in our lives when we get to that place where we're willing to let go of this in the past and to say, Look, I'm not going to live this way anymore and the changes that can happen in our life. Do we know everything that's going to happen? Nehemiah didn't have a clue. He didn't know. There was no way he could know. He just had to trust God that what he could not see happening. He didn't know. I mean, he, you know, he, think about this guy. If I say anything, I'll die. He'll kill me. So I can't say anything. So how do I get his attention? How do I even bring this up? I, you know, do I slip a note under his pillow? Do I, you know, do I do like they do with the cappuccinos, you know, and draw in the top of his wine glass, you know, I have a question or something? I mean, what do you do? You can't do anything except trust God. That's what happens in that liminal space. Maybe you're there tonight at that point. You could keep going around that same mountain. And you know, you're frustrated with it because you're like, man, I was just here. We were just there. And here we are again. Same place, same point. Nothing will change until we abandon that where we've been. And we say, Lord God, I'm ready. However, this needs to happen. That's your heart. That's that. That's nothing to do with God. That's your heart just saying, Lord, I'm in this place. That's where transformation happens.
Stand up with me. Thank you, Father God. Hallelujah. Thank you, Father. Just bow your heads just for a The song, I Surrender All, was written by a guy that for five years wrestled with God. He was in his liminal space for five years. And God was saying, this is what I want you to do. And he was like, no, this is what I want to do. And God was saying, yeah, but this is where I'm at for you. This is, this is the direction I'm leading your life. And he was over, he kept coming back. And for five years, he fought with God. And in his fifth year, he finally surrendered. When he did, he wrote the song, I Surrender All. And he says, oh, Lord, I'll do what you want me to do. It wasn't that he didn't love God. Nobody's saying that tonight to you, that you don't love God or that you're not a Christian. But are you at a place of liminal space in your life right now? Or you're tired of, you're sick and tired of being sick and tired, just same old, same old, the same old junk, the same old nonsense. You're walking around a mountain that you know you've been here before because you just saw your tracks in the sand. There's, there's junk from the past that's still laying there that you rehearsed and looked at. And God's calling. He's compelling you. He's saying, look, I'm ready to take, it's time for you to let go. It's time for you to let go and move into me. It's time for you to surrender. You know, that can be your spiritual life. That can be just that you're a, look, you believe in God, but you just haven't given yourself to him to say, Lord, I just surrender completely to you. You're still worrying more about what you give up than what you'd gain. And I'm going to tell you something tonight while heads are bowed and eyes are closed. You gain so much more than you ever give up. I promise you that. The joy and the peace that you gain far exceeds any joy and peace this world could ever offer to you. And if you're at a point in your life tonight where you're saying, Pastor, my life, look, I'm in, a, I'm in that place. I'm in that little space. And I got to make a decision. I'm at a point now where I can see across the river into what God has for me, but yet I can also look behind me and I can see what's behind me. You know, Jesus told us that any time that a man puts his hand to the plow and looks behind him, he can't be fit for what's ahead of him, the kingdom. And the reason is, is because you can't move forward while you're looking back. Your body just can't function that way. And so tonight, I want to ask you this question while... While you guys are in just this prayerful attitude, if, if you know there's something going on in your life, and I don't know everybody's story, but I know this, as a, I, this moves in layers in our lives, moments. If you're at a point tonight where you're saying, you know what, I'm ready before Almighty God to use this time as a point of letting go and moving forward. Here's what I want you to do. I was going to ask you if you would, 
that uh, while, while we're just all standing and reverencing, we're going to sing this song. I'm going to ask you just to come and kneel at the altar here tonight in prayer. This is between you and God, not between you and me. This is something you have to work out with him and uh, letting go, moving forward. And I'm just going to ask you to come. Amen. All over the building. Thank you. Is there anyone else to say tonight, that's me? This is just you kneeling at the altar tonight and just working things out with the Lord. Saying, God, I'm ready. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. I'm like Nehemiah. Lord, I'm in that place you brought. I hear your voice, God. I hear it. I hear it. I hear it. I hear you're calling me. I hear you're, you're, you're giving me command. You're giving me direction. You're giving me clarity. But Lord, I got to, tonight I surrender myself to you. I surrender myself to you. I surrender myself. All to you, Jesus. Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. God's speaking to you. Come now. You feel the draw of the Spirit. Hallelujah.
times I've been at this point in my life. Too many to remember. See, the problem is, is that the more I keep putting God off, the more the flame goes dim in my heart. The fire goes out. And I don't get closer to the Lord, I just get further away. And that doesn't mean I don't believe, it just means I lost my fire. I lost the fire. That was one of the things that he sang in this song is he said that uh, in the last verse, all to Jesus I surrender, now I feel the sacred flame. Oh, the joy of full salvation, glory, glory to his name. You know, tonight, if you've lost that sacred fire, I want you to know, look, God can revive that in your life tonight. So we're going to sing it one more time. And uh, I'm not going to belabor this because I am not going to beg people to get what God wants to freely give you. We're just not about that. You either want it or you don't want it. If the fire's gone out, then get up here and get yourself straightened out. Amen. Let's not mess around here. Don't worry about what everybody else is thinking because then if they're, they're thinking bad thoughts about you, they need to be up here. Go ahead, Tal. Oh, to Jesus, I, I do, I do, Lord. I do, Lord. Yes, Lord. Gotta reignite that fire tonight. Gotta ignite that fire tonight. Yes, Lord. I surrender all. 